This is the Knowledge Exchange Podcast. I'm Brendan Mowat and I'm joined here by a bunch of fellas who I highly respect. Um, one who I respect a little less than everyone else here is Luke Postlethwaite, my business partner. Uh, but we've got Paul McCambridge from Back to Roots from the UK who's visiting us out here, um, as well as his counterpart, Luke Davies. And we've also got new new staff member actually is just coming on board as well um mr abila himself welcome to the team mate um and boys welcome to australia how are you finding it so far loving it i say i've managed to adapt pretty quickly to the new time zones more so than paul um but managed to stay up for the first day when we got in on wednesday and to be fair, I've just put the ground running since then. So for me, I've absolutely loved it. Been playing in the parks, um, done a workshop today with you guys, which was which was a lot of fun. Um, but we're really looking forward to being able to spend and really taking the whole Australian scene. Remember, as to get down to the beaches, running the stereotypical Australian stuff. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's all it's all going well. I'm loving it, Brandon. Thanks. Uh, my body is struggling. Um, everything's back to front. I've had one hour sleep uh, this week, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, Australia's a beautiful place, Sydney's a beautiful place, and really enjoyed the course today. So, so what's the number one thing that's been the most mind-blowing for you guys? Because this is the first time you've been in Australia, right? Yeah, yeah. Second, second time, for, I, back in 2013, I was here, it was, it was an incredibly short period of time. Um, it was actually a period of time between my third and fourth year of clinic, so growing from third years undergrad to Cairo and went into in fourth year's clinical year and I actually dislocated my shoulder and I used it as a reason to not go into my final year so with my compensation payout I actually paid to get on the first flight over to Sydney because it was the final test of the Lions tour um, right. when I was actually supposed to be in clinic um, so it was a really interesting no one knows that, but that's... Uh, oh, it's, it's all coming out. It's they all coming out. out. <laughs> they don't know. So I, so I was having to basically... Um, they were emailing me, Luke, why aren't you in clinic? Because you're supposed to be starting your clinical year. Um, and I was replying on a... I was actually in Malaysia and, and in, then in Sydney. And then when I was looking at the emails, I was like nine hours in the future. So then I was having to send messages to my mum. I was freaking out, thinking, you know, I'm going to get kicked out of your clinic, etc. But that was... Um, I got away with that and no one knows about any of that so literally just said it then but um, I was in Australia then for five days for the Lions tour when we came here and won in 2013 oh, just, yeah, just right. slip that, just in. Just that in with Wales playing Australia yeah. tomorrow so. actually yeah no, I'll, I'll, I, I did say that see the, the Melbourne game that year as well um, which is really interesting but Paul what's, what's the thing that's blown your mind the most since being here I think it's the, the obvious thing just to Everything's back to front. My, I've, I've never been outside of Europe before. So it was, it was a massive plane journey. And when I talk to my girlfriend back home, like she's getting ready for bed whilst I'm, it's bright. Um, I, I think the sun's brighter over here. It's not just warmer. Um, like the first two days, I, I had to borrow look sunglasses. So I was struggling to open my eyes. It was so, it was so bright. And just your natural wildlife, like the birds, I don't know what the birds are, but um, they're, they're pretty cool, uh, just, just walking around. And, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's
the Dutch of the birds that don't fly. It's, just, it's little, little subtle differences. I mean, it's, it's similar to the UK, but it's it's very very different at the same time. Um, the air is warmer. <laughs> this is this is this is boring stuff, but it's re- really really. People say that the weather's not. Dan was saying the other day that the weather. Are we lucky again this time? When I came in 2013, it was just like wall-to-wall blue skies. Is it just not like this the whole time? No, no. For this time of year, this is pretty standard weather, I would say. But no, it's not beaches and tanned, you know, good-looking people that's everywhere. What we, that's what we think yeah, about no, of Australia. No, stats actually so suggest quite the opposite for uh, the health of Australians. But um, there's a good portion of the year that is beautiful weather, and you guys should come back for that as well. Um, so, um, I've got a couple questions just to kind of kick us off and we can see where, where our discussions go and see how controversial or non-controversial it ends up. Um, you guys are running a course, that's why you're out here um, and you're running this course in Sydney at the moment and next weekend um, down, in, down in Melbourne. Um, and a huge part of what you're doing um, is about play and the science around play and incorporating it in clinical practice, which... Um, it is one of the reasons that got me really excited and for us at the Knowledge Exchange to kind of partner up with you guys and get you out here um, to kind of share those, those aspects with, with locals over here. Um, and, and one part that you talk about and, and, and a line that you drop really frequently that a lot of our listeners won't be familiar with um, that I'd kind of like to understand a little bit more about um, is this, this term constraints-based non-linear pedagogy. Um, I, I'm kind of interested for you guys to just kind of explain what that is and, and what that means to you. Yeah, you know, we, we, we touched on it a little bit today um, and it was the introduction to some of the things that we, we did do. Um, but we're going to spend a little bit more time going into our created the lecture material, bringing a lot of the resources from, um, from the non-linear pedagogy, which is largely in the coaching Realm. If you go into sports coaching, and that's where a lot of this, um, this this literature currently is, which was initially in the in baby development model, and 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 I think it's the sooner it's going to come into the clinical rehabilitation pathway, the better. And I don't see too many people doing it. And what it really it really opens up for us to be able to do is, you know, we're being told that there is no correct way to do a particular. Task, especially especially when we're coming away from the really high load stuff. So, when we're working with people with neck pain, back pain, or common aches and pains, in the vast majority of cases, there's not there's not a right way to lift your shoulder. There's not a right way to bend down to the floor. There's going to be an individual way that you might do it. There's a way that I might do it, and even within myself, there's going to be lots of ways that I will do it. And it's this concept concept of repetition without repetition. Now. <clears throat> How do we facilitate and how do we coach and prescribe exercises without saying, okay, Dan, this is, this is the right way for you to achieve this overhead lift, okay? You maybe have come and you've, you know, you've tested positive on all your overhead positions or shoulder impingement tests or all of these sorts of things. And we want to be able to maybe apply, we want to be able to come up with a novel or a new way of moving first and foremost to see if that gives us an avenue. But then we want to be able to create a situation that affords the person the opportunity to, to explore those solutions. And that's really what this whole idea of dynamical systems or non-linear pedagogy is based around, is 
the fact that there is lots of ways to be able to achieve the task and what what becoming comfortable with a constraint based approach enables us is to be able to manipulate things like the environment which means that we could simply change the space that we're working in that would then afford you an opportunity to lift your shoulder we could create a task that would then encourage you to lift the shoulder or you to bend the back or lift or bend the knee whatever it is that is relevant to that case and that's always going to be an individual but if we were to if we were to look at the shoulder and we say we wanted to get overhead we wanted to see if we could get a change the processing of that shoulder and get that person overhead without saying lift your arm overhead. So maybe we'd come up with a task where we would say, okay, we would put a ball on your wrist, a tennis ball or a lacrosse ball, and we would say, okay, so is there any way, or I want you to, we'll come up with some rules or some constraints and say that this ball can't lose contact with your skin, and it also can't lose contact with something else, a wall, a pole, another body, and then we would then give them a goal. I say, like, can you end up with this ball without losing contact to you? And can it end up on the other wrist? So then you can't break the rules that we've made. But then we see how that person can then solve that task, which may or may not involve a position or movement that we want to be able to see. And that's really where the nuance of being able to apply a constraint-based approach is as much about art as it is about really logical programming but that's where when we look at non-linear self-organizing systems which is what this whole this whole line of um of current emergence and etc is all based on facilitates exactly what we're working with we're working with bodies that are complex and being able to create and work with exercises that enables that to come out is when we're moving towards individualizing movement and being able to talk about being able to create an adaptive response that is going to involve lots of different ways to solve the same thing. So that's a long-winded way of going around that, but that is, that is what is an, probably an unusual concept for a lot of people to be able to, to, be able to work with these things because it, it takes us into the realm of queuing and all sorts. You know, we, look, we know that it's more effective for people to be able to learn skill acquisition with external queuing. Mm. Okay, and that's, that's pretty... Pretty, pretty robust in the literature so when we were in the workshops today I didn't talk too much about queuing but you were, if you look back at everything we did we didn't use internal queuing once everything was about responding to an external stimulus that would then require the person to self-organise and that's really what, why, why, why I think external queuing is so effective is it because it facilitates self-organisation which we use an example for me um, and it's a challenge I like to put out. Is there anybody that has less internal rotation in their hips than me? You know, it's a constraint. So if we're going to be using some of those archery or stick-based games, I'm going to, if you're doing it to me, I'm going to have to self-organise in a way that my body has to adapt around that, which may not look like a normal, <clears throat> a normal squat to someone else who's maybe got 45 degrees of, or a normal, more typical range of movement in the hip. But again, that's an example where I would have grown up and I went through my entire clinical pathway of people saying, okay, that this is not, you haven't got enough internal rotation. That's a problem. You need to stretch it more rather than someone being able to say, hang on, that's just normal for your hips. 
you need to find ways of actually being able to navigate that and solving problems with the hips that you have. So that's where having a constraints-based approach, it facilitates all these unusual abnormalities that we can maybe label and actually makes it normal for that person to then be able to find adaptive solutions to a task themselves. And it sounds like it's quite uh, at loggerheads, like this, this whole theory, this idea of basically trying to help a person explore their own capabilities and move in by just creating an environment in which that can be expressed in, in different ways is quite the opposite of what a lot of practitioners, including myself, and, and, I, and I think all of us are sitting around yeah. here, where traditional traditional... Um, strategies have been really about corrective exercises. Someone comes in, they've got a problem. And it is about, rather than helping facilitate an environment in which they can kind of start to move into some of these positions or facilitate different ways of moving and, and solving those movement problems, like you put it, it was rather we, we, we fix it by often internal cueing, quite the opposite, but then also getting the right muscles to activate in the right orders, you know, work on scapula, dyskinesia, and, and getting the upper traps backing off and serratus anterior doing what it's supposed to do in, in, in a really kind of complex framework, which is, I think, still really common practice now. How do you, um, I guess with your courses, you, you probably would have a lot of these these people or, or a lot of people still subscribing to these underpinning ideas coming along. How do you see a way that sort of fits into your model or how, how do you bridge that? I mean, I mean me and Paul, we, we were at, a, this was quite funny. Um, I don't know whether this will get to the people who, Paul's probably, looking, probably knows what we're talking about already, but um, I don't think the audience who's going to hear this is going to, is going to, going to be the same as where we were a few weeks ago we were at quite a vitalistic chiropractic conference which again we were presenting a very strong evidence base and that probably wasn't exactly what they particularly wanted they wanted to have maybe a different um, different takeaways but one of the things we did do in in my workshop was present this idea of constraint-based play or constraint-based exercise prescription trying to cultivate variable movements in the spine so the typical areas that lead people to come to a chiropractor. So <clears throat> thoracic stiffness and neck stiffness, etc. So then we got to a point by the end of our hour workshop where we were, we'd made some constraints from sort of the rib cage down that that couldn't move. And then being able to offer an input to the upper segments to try and get some spinal movement. And I use Paul as, as my partner and uh, to then be able to demonstrate and I was throwing different arrows at Paul and he was coming up with some nice flowful movement and responding and by and arrows we're talking hands we're right talking now about just hands. for listeners like <laughs> you're not actually throwing hands. sharp objects at yeah, Paul. It, it could be a pencil it could be a stick it could be a sharp object but Paul's basically dodging them with whatever he has to to be able to not get touched by the arrows and I choose where I, if I want to see flexion of his spine I just come to the side and I would put the arrow across the front so that then he would have to flex rather than saying flex just create a situation where he would have to flex Um, but then doing it in lots of variable ways and then one of the participants came up afterwards and said um, you know that was really interesting stuff it was you know it it was fun really enjoyed it but when when Paul was Paul was doing all those movements and dodging the sticks he was 
how was he remembering all those movements? <laughs> as, as if it was the question it was a difficult one to answer it was just so completely the wrong way around it, 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 me and Joe me and Paul had a laugh about it afterwards um, but it, I think it is a confu- it's a confusing thing it's, it's something that we really try and shift it away from is that whatever movements that person does is trying not to think about what they are it's trying to think about the external thing that causes them to be able to move in whatever, in whatever ways that they have to move. Um, so shifting away from this internal, internal explanation for how you do something is something that I think, again, it's just, that just takes care of itself when we start thinking about tasks rather than about the processes that solve the task. Um, if there's one way that you want to make someone who's a proficient performer break down their technique a golfer or something it's to ask them to tell you how they did it because you start bringing in a conscious thinking process to something that they've made autonomous and again as you've got some famous studies like the the guy who was the Harlem Globe trotter you know that study where he threw 500 well he did the world record of free free throws um, in a row and he did five, 499 and on the 500th he missed it so something, something conscious starts happening there and starts thinking about like, what do I have to do um, brings a conscious co- and then he chokes and, and that is the, that's the essence of choking is then bringing that yeah. conscious yeah. element in um, so yeah it's, it's, it's an interesting thing we'll be talking a little bit more about it tomorrow but just with something simple like that how do you, how do you take if you're looking at a basketball th- free, free throw you know, where is the focus you know, an internal focus would be to be able to think about right extension of the wrist. So when you're throwing it, think about extending that wrist, as opposed to an external focus where, right, thinking about ball rotation, make the ball spin. It completely changes. The wrist will take care of itself when you're thinking about the the ball and causing the rotation on the ball. And that's really something that we really try and deliver people with confidence. With the, at the end of our courses is to be able to say okay so all of the amazing complexities of how the body does move will just happen if we can create the constraints and the external environments and cues to facilitate that so it's like going from conscious competence to unconscious competence I think I've heard yeah. in, the, um, in the rounds when, when discussing these topics yeah. and it makes it kind of bridges the gap between the sports coaching performance coaching world and rehab Absolutely. Awesome. I mean, it's, it's inter- there's an interesting distinction when you look at, so I talk, mentioned there, if you want to call someone who's already already an expert in something to get them to think about it. So there's some pretty good golf studies around um, comparing expert golfers and novice golfers when you put them under time constraints. So when you, if, you, if, you, if you let an expert golfer have too long to think about something their putting gets significantly worse again this whole idea of overthinking bringing consciousness in rather than just going through the the autonomous pathway but then novices perform better when they have more time so being able to have that initial probably internal focus cueing as a pathway to progress towards external um, is probably a pathway that is relevant for novice to experts how do we bring that into our exercise prescription? That would be that would be a trend that we would tend to move from 
maybe internal queuing to start with to get to external queuing. Would you ever start with extrinsic cues at the when teaching a newbie a motor skill? I'm just thinking about the times when riding a bike, I would just fail multiple times and still fail at the moment. But um, you wouldn't really think of the quadricep like extending yeah, each time. That's, that's what that, yeah. I'm saying. There, so that seems mm-hmm. if you're t- if you're teaching ride a bike or if you're mm-hmm. talk, talking about teaching a squat, this seems to be helpful for novices. Because again, we're all novices at different things to then be able to really think about the body part or draw an awareness to it initially. That seems to be more effective for novices than it does for more experienced. Mm. And that seems to make sense. Again, once you can get, once you can drive those um, pathways further down the nervous system so it becomes more autonomous, we want to be taking the high levels of, of thinking out of it. And that's, that's really what the, the literature on this sort of stuff um, probably shows. We're not ignoring Paul. He's just uh, he's going to come in later with the, with the big finisher. I feel, <laughs> um, but I suppose it's going to be directed back at Luke again. Today was great. I, I had a ball. It's very rare I go to a PD course and have a sore face from smiling. I had tears running down my my cheeks at one point in one of the games that we played. And you just said before in your story that. You know, these people say, oh, they had fun, and then they, they find some roadblock to this approach. And I've seen a room full of health professionals clearly having a, a large amount of enjoyment doing those games, but also seen a room full of really uncomfortable people completely out of their comfort zone. How did we, like, why is there such a discrepancy between, like, you put children in that room, that would be completely natural to them, what we did today. But as adults, health professionals, it was just like, you know, you were speaking Swahili or a different language. It was, it was a different language to, to most people in that room. Yeah, and it's, it's so, something that I'm trying to work on is the way that I tell stories myself. So, again, it's, it's something I'm working on, trying to make myself look a little bit stupid, maybe at the start, trying to tell stories, do a little bit of movement um, and things. But, you know, when we're, we're introducing the broad spectrum of how we try and introduce movement, you know, we think everything's important, and that's what a rounded physical education or general approach to physical uh, education, including strength, including mobility, including rhythm. And that's probably the area that we're all most uncomfortable with because no one wants to feel stupid. You know, I was talking to um, I was talking to a couple of guys afterwards. Um, the stuff that we did earlier was probably rhythm or martial arts, dance derived from those fields to bring those in and they probably make us feel comfortable because unless you're in the field of dance then rhythm and flow based stuff is new and no one wants to feel silly and so while in in our workshops we'll often expose people to things like body percussion hand rhythms and flow based stuff in our programs a lot of the time that we will deliver rhythm will be with jump rope to take that barrier of feeling stupid people particularly guys we tend to feel less silly when we're on a jump rope I don't, I don't think, whether it's the association with boxing or whatever um, but we often for that very reason will try and use jump rope as a leeway into getting some rhythm component um, but in, in, in terms of getting a, a childlike approach to literally exploring and rolling around and touch again a lot of people particularly in in Europe, we tend to be a little bit uncomfortable with touching, and it's something that the barriers that we try and break down to get people 
to simply touch each other. There's enormous value to therapeutic touch in and of itself. Um, but when we can get to that point, as you saw today, what then does emerge is often a lot of fun and people then do let themselves experience things that they otherwise wouldn't. I mean, how often would you have been <coughs> uh, simulating clay being marched around the room and, and touching other people? So it's, 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 an, it's, again, all ties into this whole approach that we're trying to give people a novel experience that our clients probably face most of the time when they come to us as well. So, And another thing that's kind of like leads into, for me at least, so, you know, we've spoken about the people coming to your courses and the practitioners who, who've got that barrier of going, all right, how do I how do I take this on board? How do I use this in a clinic? And I think you guys are quite experienced in adopting this and, and having problem solved this yourself. And I think that's a big thing, right, where, you know, you guys have figured this out as you've gone and adopted bit by bit of research to really support that and really buy into into this evidence-based practice, whereas, you know, you smash practitioners for two days with the research and strategies to start exploring it, um, which I think is fantastic. Um, and so I, I think my question is, we've, we have these people in the clinic coming in with, with quite serious conditions, or at least perceived serious to them. Um, and, you know, if we're to sort of adopt a, a playful strategy, a way that makes the rehab process far more enjoyable. And we know there's so many biopsychosocial benefits from adopting this kind of strategy with with the majority of people what is the fundamental framework for you, for you guys I mean we don't need huge detail but what are the things that you go oh, I need to make sure this is in place before we start exploring these kind of elements of play and, and, and enjoyment and positive affect and, and yeah I mean social Paul, Paul talked about it today in our in our in our workshop where everything comes off of a really solid initial assessment, and we had we had a we had a client that came to us recently with um, um, with back pain, and he turned out he had cervical myelopathy, and the only reason way that we were able to identify what that was by doing a full thorough physical examination, a really comprehensive neurological exam listened to his story and all the things that he'd gone through to then piece it all together. And one of the things that he, when I pieced it all together for him in a way to explain what cervical myelopathy was, why he was having such problems with his balance, coordination, the impact on his life, multiple surgeries, unnecessary ones. He had, he had surgery on his shoulders. He's happy to let us share his case actually for teaching. Um, but one of the biggest things that he was blown away by it. He just wasn't expecting to have had such a um, such a comprehensive assessment. And we spent a lot of time together, listening and talking, and, and validating his experience, and being able to do a lot of tests that a lot of other healthcare professionals just hadn't done. We were doing basic a basic neuro, full neurological exam. I'm saying basic, but a lot of people don't do it. You know, being able to test sensory, motor, coordination, and for him to then have gone through that. To then have a report of findings, which is where we talk about a diagnosis, what could you do to help yourself, what can I do to help you, how long is it going to take, all of these things. He had been heard, and all of the things that he might have been concerned about, we were able to test with reasoning and explaining, okay, this reflex that we're doing here, this is showing this, 
as we're going along to the point that we're then being able to offer explanations for things like disc bulges or things like I'm getting older and I've got degeneration. By the time we can offer him some tangible explanations for the fact that this is quite normal, to get people to that point of saying, okay, so what opportunities do I have? What are the things that I can do? And that leads us to be able to then be able to use some of like the research what Paul presented as an incredibly liberating evidence base to then be able to say, okay, so if we can do things that is going to be new and novel, then we can give our nervous system the best chance of being able to adapt and be able to change pain and all these sorts of things, potentially. Um, and that leads us into being able to then say, okay, so if 95% of, 99% of, of, of presentations of neck and back pain, which is what we tend to see most of the time, is not serious, then treatment of it, why is it so serious? So it all frames the pathway and the process for being able to have a different approach that is all based around having a good experience with movement. And then what play means to that person is always going to be different. So for, for one person, it might be monkeying around. For someone else, it might be playing with the setup of, a, of the grip and different things with a max deadlifting. You know, play has play is, play is got so many, different, so many different connotations, but that's um, that initial... That initial really thorough starting process leads to this, almost the transition from serious to not serious, although it, we give it as much weight as anything else. And, and it sounds like it, you know, from from that subjective interview, you know, understanding what their goals are, what their problem is, that's what kind of helps you dictate, you know, what are you know what are the strategies you're going to use to to to, to start moving them forward. Is that basically what you're yeah, exactly. based on? And that's and what like uh, what we will choose. A lot of our students they they struggle to get their head around the starting point of where do you start with a person? Mm. Yeah, because there's there's no there is no right answer to that, and you can do anything re- within reason to help someone potentially in pain. But what we will then what we will try and choose is movements or tasks that we can expose them to so gentle spinal movements or a ball game that involves you being able to respond and those what things that we will pick will be things that we can then typically offer a progression because we're comfortable to be able to do so maybe if we've started with a ball game maybe that leads towards juggling if they enjoyed it so then there's a pathway that's there if we started off with some spinal isolation work that because someone's got back pain and just doing some pelvic tilts those that is a pathway that could lead down towards more contemporary dance type stuff if you wanted to continue with it and they enjoyed it so with the things that we, we choose to pick from the starting point is just playing ourselves with what is it that engages this person mm-hmm. I, think, I think that was that was great and I remember back in uni we were just taught the basic rehab progressions, the old penguin exercise with TheraBand for any shoulder, um, the whole lying down on the back and just doing basic core activation. Um, and people would just be bored, and even practitioners would be bored. So I think there's huge value in, in this course and, and involving some enjoyment and play in rehab. And some clients might not even have had the experience of moving in an enjoyable, safe, supportive environment before. 
So um, I think my question is more along the lines of the movement variability that you guys talked on. Uh, what's what's the value that you see for for rehab for and for the performance world of being able to move in different ways, having more than one option when you move? If I can jump in there, look. Um, so we know that people in pain generally have less movement variability. Um, some people talk about movement variability as a as a key clinical goal. Although again, there's there's a balance of that. You you, you don't want to have an infinite amount of movement variability where you, you just can't do the task at hand. So there there's neurological dis- disorders that get extremely high movement variability. So that there there is a finite point. But people here in pain uh, generally don't have very much movement variability, and and we know that that means they're doing similar movements. There's generally a repetitive load to that movement. So even if you're talking biomechanically, there's an increased chance of a flare-up if they're loading the same pattern again and again and again. So being able to give somebody more options to do a movement that's important to them, that's meaningful for them, is is a key clinical goal in rehabilitation. Now, you can do that in, in many ways. You can do it in some of the very basic ways you were talking about and there's nothing wrong with that and you can get results with that Um, however we know that when it comes to adherence to exercise rehabilitation exercise rehabilitation adherence is spectacularly awful so if you give if a physio gives a patient a exercise program the chances of them doing it are about 40 percent or less so exercise adherence is is a big problem and it's, it's probably the biggest problem because pe- people aren't doing what, or people are not doing the things that are sh- probably going to help get them better. So I, I think as practitioners, it's, it's our responsibility to make it interesting. They're going to tell you what they want. They're going to tell you what is meaningful for them. So you've you've already got a potential starting point. So the only way you're going to find out where they're at is to actually get them moving and find out what they can do, what their options are, what kind of threshold they're at in terms of, of pain. But then with that, then you can create a program that's interesting. So if, if, you're, if you're talking about the shoulder, rotator cuffs, yeah, everybody knows the things where you're going to do TheraBand work, external rotation, internal rotation. And, and you know, if, if somebody's not moved, that can be enjoyable itself. But for a lot of people, if you say, okay, yeah, do that three times, uh, three sets of ten, do that at home, here's a TheraBand, we know the likelihood is they're not going to do that. However, if you can create a, a situation or a game that they enjoy, whether it can be a throwing game or a task with a stick or an avoidance game or we play clay or where you can, you can create those movements with movement variability, so you're increasing their options, um, it usually becomes more interesting. And, and what we see with our patients is that they smile and they laugh. And a, a very good paper that I constantly cite from a lady called Sunny Angel shows that exercise prescription adherence, the, the biggest factors for it is joy, meaning, and passion. So if, if you're creating something that they're enjoying that's relevant for them, then they're more likely to do it. The other factor with that is is that usually when we play these uh, games with our patients, that we're actually building our therapeutic alliance with them when we do that, as opposed to giving, okay, here you go, here's your exercises, here's your band, here's how you do it, go and do that on your own, which, which you know, that's okay, but could we do better? So, so you've got an interaction with them, you're, you're communicating with them, you're playing a game with them that they, they will enjoy. Um, 
and you're also building your own partnership with them. So if you are actually giving them something to do on their own, even if I played the game with them and then give them the TheraBand exercises, if I've worked on my partnership with the, with the patient, we know that the clinic, uh, the partnership and health professional partnership is the biggest driver of self-management adherence. So it's not something that's discussed much, but if, if you've got a very strong relationship with your patient, and we feel that rehab is, is a great option to do that. So it's, yeah, communication, of course, and empathy, of course, listening, validation are key things, but also within your rehabilitation, you can also work on that therapeutic alliance by, there's, there's a pushback where we talk about, okay, let's not do things to our patients, let's do things with our patients. That's trying to get them to move possibly away from passive care. Um, we do our exercise rehab with our patients and, and we use that as a tool not just to make them enjoy it and have a laugh but also to increase that partnership which we know leads to better self-management. So, so movement variability, it's, it's a clinical goal. It, you, know, you, you can create it in many ways it can affect the partnership, affect self-management and, and many other things. Once again, the strategy is just all, all these ideas are just in such contrast to the tra- these traditional paradigms, aren't they? Where you know people come in and we, we we you know create more rules for them, more rules for them to fail by, which are often when we look at the literature, just constructs that we've created as a hypothesis of poor movement or bad or risky movement that's never really been substantiated in in, in most of these ideas. Yeah, this is more about going, no, there is no right or wrong here. Let's find ways for you to explore that and, and, and start enjoying your body again, enjoying movement and having that freedom, um, which, which I think from, from my perspective where, um, you know, one of the passionate things I'm about is, you know, trying to create better adherence, getting people, more people exercising. I think um, a lot of exercise physiologists that I run into, that is one of the things that they bring up is we need to get more people exercising, you know, 45% of Australians are meeting exercise guidelines and it's so far from that. Yet, when we look at clinical practice, the majority of practices are, are really kind of creating a lot of these other barriers for people to actually start moving and enjoying movement because yeah. they feel so trapped in their bodies. And what I love about what you guys are preaching and, and throwing out there is this idea of, no, let, let's liberate them, let's give them permission to move again. Yeah. but sometimes we may just have to help them do that and, and, and stage stage through that. So that's not a question at all. That's me just kind of blowing you yeah, on and, a little bit. Yeah, you're, you're, um, absolutely, you're absolutely right because any barrier that's brought up... So I, I've, I've worked uh, in the UK and the NHS with, with people who've had quite severe chronic pain problems for, for a long time and the smallest of any sort of buyer, even if it's an exercise condition that you give them, then suddenly their chances of, of any compliance to anything you give them goes massively down. So anything you can do to remove the barriers is, is a useful thing, but what you, what you were alluding to there about allowing patients to have a bit more freedom and confidence to yourself is, is all about self-efficacy, which we spoke mm. about today again. Is, is the, if, if someone's got higher self-efficacy, that's the biggest driver of relieving pain mm. more so than any manual therapy even even if you, you can create self-efficacy in other ways beyond exercise um, but again we, we feel that if, if, if they want to do something you can you can create an environment that's quite similar to that um, and they can see themselves doing it and they're like okay yeah I can get up and down off the floor I've actually enjoyed this this is something I used to fe- fear 
but now you've shown me ways, oh, this can actually be an enjoyable task that we've created, that self-efficacy is going to go up. And therefore, you're, you're having an impact on pain, and pain's a very difficult thing to impact, especially people who are in chronic pain. Uh, never mind function and disability and the fact that they're enjoying it. So um, yeah, it's, it's, I've, I've yet to find anything that's got better clinical reasoning. I'm biased, of course, but it, it seems to make a lot of sense. Well, absolutely. And I think like hedonic theory is this idea that you know we will do more of the things that we enjoy doing. And um, I mean, this isn't completely new to me, but today, like just the, the games we played, the interactions we had, like. I, effectively, I was I had a, had a ball. Like, uh, you know, well, I was like Luke, laughing, smiling, having a great time, and really, you know, quite alert and awake, despite being ridiculously hungover. Well, yeah. and, and and I think if we can instill that in our clinical interactions, you know, you, you might not get everyone. You don't. You might not draw it in. You can't help everyone, but I think surely that's casting a larger net. So my question is, if it's patients are having more fun, right, it's in line with the evidence, clinicians are having more fun, you don't have to spend a copious amount of money on equipment, why is this not, like, this is not new information, right? it's not like we just discovered play last week, it's been around since kids have been around, why, why what, what's the barrier to adoption? Well, the, the, there is there is no barrier, but um, the, the word when What's you when, when when you talk about play itself, so from a marketing and business perspective on, on our courses, we, we get people telling us all the time, and somebody told it to me last night, perhaps we should change the word play um, because you know <laughs> who was that look? Sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> because because it's it's got this childlike, non-serious, uh, you know, like and. You know, I've got, I've got a serious clinical health condition, and what's this guy going to do? Just going to play around with me? But, but we, we, it's not. If I was to say we use the word play loosely, that's a little bit unfair. Play, play, like a lot of things, like like self-management, for example. The, the definition of play is really ambiguous. It can mean a lot of things. To me, play means all exercise. So when you're talk, when you're talking about exercise rehabilitation, that covers play. But play goes much, much further beyond that, um, and it, it just. There is there is no bias, but I don't think I don't think clinicians really understand the the kind of infinite creativity that they have. As as long as is, you've done your good clinical assessment and those those red flags are ruled out, then you, you ask the patient what is it that's really meaningful and important for you. Uh, what is it you want to be able to do? Okay, I, I want to be able to do X. Okay, well then, how can I make that really interesting for them that they're going to do it? How can I make it so it's enjoyable for them? How can I make it in a way that builds my relationship with them because that will improve their self, self-management self and their self-efficacy? So I, th- I think people get stuck in these kind of linear programs that kind of Daniel mentioned um, where it's like, okay, that, that's what exercise rehabilitation means to people. But whenever whenever people see our, our videos on social media where we're playing a lot of games and co- quite unique styles and, you know, catching sticks, balls, crawling animal, whatever, it's, it's infinite. You really have got a license to do so much. I mean, I, I would say infinite. There's infinite choice. You've seen us today playing rhythm games and, and you know, clapping games, things that you probably seen you, you haven't seen since school, like maybe a young, a young girl playing like a clapping and skipping rhythm game at school. I can clinically reason that from, from a motor perspective, from even, from even a neurological perspective, that that can be useful for certain people. 
So I don't, I don't think people realise the, the kind of scope that they can have. And then, we, we spoke about it again today, clinicians themselves aren't really that active, and they're certainly not that... They don't, they don't seem to have that huge scope of physical activity. I think, I think we need to look at ourselves and say, OK, skipping can be a part of rehabilitation. Dance can be a part of rehabilitation. Strength and conditioning, of course, is a big key part of rehabilitation. But you, as long as you can create it in line with what the patient wants in their story, it's, it's infinite. So, so there is no real barriers. I just don't think clinicians realise that you can, you can implement the evidence guidance for chronic pain rehabilitation in such a large number of ways. Well, uh, something, something I'll add to that is, is that some of the feedback that we will often get and when we expose people to this type of training, this type of... Because, again, just through manipulation of variables today, we did a couple of five-minute sets of just some of the creative moves based on the constraints that we use. That instantly turns something creative into hard work. So it's this, under, this understanding of being able to manipulate variables like you would with any other form of strength and conditioning. Just what I think is a barrier that... From the feedback that we get is that people struggle to come up with ideas for constraints. Okay, so you've come up with this idea of archery or arrows for being able to to be able to make a game. How and where does it lead to? It's something that we're working on because currently through own through experience of putting myself into lots of different realms of, of, of performance and movement disciplines to be able to create them myself. I know that not everyone's going to put that amount of time in like I do. So in the same way that you could offer, like the GLAD trial, you could offer progressions to make something more difficult, you can make progressions and regressions on what are useful constraints. And that is something that you guys will take from two days with us this weekend with the tasks that we've created. And I think that it will help a lot of people when we could create... Because currently, unless you look at like the, the Renshaw 2019 books of constraint-led approach, which will give you some progressions of constraints in athletics, in um, hockey, in different sports, to be able to apply that clinically, it currently doesn't exist. So that is a barrier, and that's something that we are creating that currently is only accessible with us in person, because it's in my head, and it's in Paul's head. But it, 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 that is a barrier to more people doing it, is having it as. So is this a product launch of the playbook? Something that's something that's simmering. <laughs> it is something that's simmering. But um, I think that you can. I think that you can create progressions and regressions, almost like a cookbook approach to the constraints that still cultivates all the creativity and emergence of each level of constraint. If that makes sense. Yeah. I've got two questions from that because you told me earlier today, you told me earlier today that you get your clients to do their own programming. You're here in Australia for a month and your clients are sending their programs that they wrote themselves to you. Yeah. Which is probably challenges how most people go about uh, prescribing to their clients or engaging with their clients. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about that one first. So one of the big things, again, the interesting thing that a lot of people... It causes some discussion points. Is that we sell active, we sell block pa packages of care. So we will sell typically programs. 
<laughs> we we know we know that we've got this enormous scope of things that we think are important in a healthcare program, and we try to do it in a and learning and educating is a massive part of that. And you can't you know these things take time. I take ages to learn something myself. I can't expect the people that I'm helping to pick things up, you know, in one session. So that's what our approach to working in packages of care gives us time to be able to teach people. So then one of, in, one of the, in, in the first three sessions of people doing programs with, programs with us, they have to get a logbook, which means that they then start developing responsibility for taking reflections after every session. So that task that we just did, I want you to just write back so that when we come in next session, what was good about it, maybe what was difficult, and they start developing that from session one. So then when they come in, and we, I use a chalkboard, and I will use programming. So you mentioned about the, the TheraBand type stuff. If you actually have a look at and follow me online or follow the, my clients online, put a lot of fly-on-the-wall footage to show this, I, we do meticulous strength and conditioning programming, a lot of it based on gymnastic strength conditioning. So we'll program almost like the old Charles Poliquin way with A1, A2, B1, C1, C2, C3, C4, and then we'll create and there may be a1 is a if i've got an acl program a1 is a knee extension machine but then a2 may be a gyration of the spine that they're working on and they're supersetting that and i've given them ideas of how to program that and then doing that through all the different things in their program that then at maybe session seven I will say, right, for session number eight, you're going to look through everything we've done in the last three sessions, and I want you to, to attempt to make your own little version. So then they will start putting together some of their metabolic training, some of their rhythm training, some of their strength and conditioning work, and play with the, with the, different, the, different, um, the different ways that I've organised it for them, for them to start mixing and matching it. Which means that, for example... By the time we get people to session 12, which may take three weeks for one person, it may take six months for someone else, where we say that you don't need us, you don't need anybody else, but if you want to continue with us, you have the opportunity to then renew based on all the things that we've exposed you to. And by that point, one of my targets is that they can send me their training notes without me being there. So now when I've come to Australia now for a month, I've got my guys sending me their training notes and little videos of them doing things that includes all the different stuff that we've been working on, uh, which is cool. And it's and I've shown Paul at the, the, earlier some of the stuff that our guys are doing in their ACL rehab. They know the remit of what they can't do, and they're only working on the things that they have done up with us up to that point. Um, and, and it's pretty cool to see that coming together when... We talk about self-efficacy and people being in control, them making the decisions. That's it ticks a lot of boxes in terms of that that exercise adherence, all of these things. So, do you do sort of single sessions at all, or is it it's literally you, you basically you block book? That's it. That's it. And so, if you had someone who came in who um, uh, Really, like from a clinical perspective, because I, I can identify occasionally I'll have someone like this where they come in and really they need affective reassurance, they need, need to be checked out, uh, you know, a thorough examination, they need to be heard, and 
they're really the barriers to them being able to achieve their goals are you know they've, they've got control of it even even from one session really um, and then there'll be follow up in that but with those sorts of people it, it, do you find that that's still appropriate because so you, you said this so that you've, they've, you've reassured all those things in one session Possibly, yeah. Because like, so, I'm saying everyone's different, right? And sometimes yeah. that that reassurance isn't going to be, you know, as comprehensive mean, or as, yeah. as, as necessary maybe as the next person. Well, with, a, and, with and some people, they, they don't, don't need any. Right. So if, you, if, if we, we talk about well, we talk about a, a hands-off approach, if if we don't have to say something, that we're much better off saying less than saying more. And right. in our approach to healthcare, because we're strength coaches as well as clinicians. The packages of kit, and we also have yoga teachers, trainers, people who are able to do that, that end of the, of the pathway as well. We back ourselves to be able to say, okay, so if we're going to be pitching a healthcare process for you for 12 sessions, and we use a chalkboard to be able to paint this red flag triage, and then we cross this metaphorical bridge from passive care to active care with the old Louis, Louis Gifford Toblerone effect, where there's going to be some days where we're going to push things and poke it and it's going to be a flare-up potentially. Um, but over the course of that time, we're going to be expanding your capacity to do things, pushing the envelope. Um, if we can start you the other side of that bridge, in terms of it being all about exercise and it being all about the active things, the goals that you're working towards then that's what we will do. And that's, that's consistent across every single project. If you come to us with a broken big toe or chronic back pain, if we can be getting you starting the other side of that bridge, that is how we communicate it and people buy into that and they can see often that they've been jumping back and forward in this passive care, not really being able to get to the bottom of things. So that then, in our report of findings, when, we've been, when we're talking about the goals and the things that they'd like to do, if we can get straight on with that, okay, we, we've got 11 sessions working on weight loss, working on new movements, whatever it is that that person wants to be able to do. And, and so I, I, I love your idea and I, lo- I love this thinking. Um, but, I, but I still see this problem with there's some people out there who don't have a, a need or, or a want for that they don't necessarily need well this a, is our, our help right and so do they fall in the gaps where it's just like oh no actually i don't want to buy the package like what happens to those people no, in, in the report so we have a session one which is a full assessment which yeah. may take as long as it takes one hour three hours whatever it takes we don't have time constraints on that then we have the second session which is the report findings piecing it all together giving a really clear diagnosis if right. there's a specific one or equally if there's a non-specific one to then be able to say all of you know, give him really good reassurance give him if this person doesn't need anything they don't need a package of care mm. they will be able to get everything from good reassurance and di- directions and guidance in that report findings that means that and with a lot with some people we'll say hey, you, you don't need anything cool. this is this is this is you know this is not serious you don't need to see anybody else or you need a scan whichever way it may be you know get on with get on and Gradually go with the things that are important for you. Yeah, that would be that would be the the triage right. of report findings. Yeah, beautiful. As opposed to someone who's coming with a, a ruptured ACL, and we're talking about seven to twelve <laughs> months or whatever yeah. it may be, we we start that. Or if it's neck pain, back pain, and we say oh, we can't really put a natural history on this, 
this would be how we'd go about selling a package of care of time that takes as long as it takes. Yeah, beautiful. Not to drill you on it, because I, 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 but I think it is like one of those really big topics, and it is one of those like topics that is so much highly debated, uh, especially chiropractors. Like you, you, you've, <laughs> you're fighting a, a hard, hard turn there, but that's not what you're doing. You're not doing a traditional block booking sort of sort of strategy. I find that really, really fascinating how you're doing that, and that's why I guess I wanted to dig a little bit yeah. deeper about what those lines are and how you deal with that. Because I, I, I do find that as a business owner, it's, it's interesting, it's hard to kind of figure out where, where we sit and those lines in the sand are forever moving, but just trying to find all right, what's ethical, where, where, you know, what is helpful, what is promoting positive healthcare that is moving you know, our society in the right direction. And that's, and that's, the, that's where the, the ethical side of where we, we stand with that is that all of the guidelines, when you look at the, the papers and, and the recommendations, says that we need to be impacting behaviour change. So if we want to be impacting behaviour change and we want to be, and we're being told that we need to be affecting how people are sleeping, how people are interacting socially, how people, the lifestyle side of stuff, yeah. then that takes time to be able to impact those things. So if we have... 12 sessions with someone who's bought in almost in the equivalent of a personal training approach. People don't seem to have the same issue around someone's paid for 10 weeks of personal training. Mm-hmm. You know, so if someone's come to us with pain, but then th- th- they've had a great result and they get out of pain in one session, then, mm-hmm. okay, we've got 10 weeks of the equivalent of active lifestyle design. Right. Yeah. That's pretty defendable. And if you look at the evidence base of what we've presented this weekend, that we can defend mm-hmm. to anybody. If, if, you look, if you look at the research paper recently that it's tried its best to put it all together from an evidence base, so, so the GLAD paper on low back pain, it's spending 60-minute sessions of active care with people over 12 weeks. Um, and that's on, that's on top of the education that they get, which is two sessions of 60-minute education sessions. So this is a paper that's attempted to pull all the evidence together and see, okay, this is what we should be doing. And it says, okay, we should be spending a bit longer with people and to get them to adhere to things, to get them to do things, we probably need to be with them. So they're supervised sessions, so they know that they're being done. And it's over 12 weeks. Um, so there's probably evidential support to be with people over a period of time. But I do, I do want to say that, you know, we, we are in the business of trying to help people. There, there are much better business models than what we do that will make a hell of a lot more money. <laughs> Much better business models, especially in chiropractic. Um, completely unethical, and, and, I, and I detest them, but you know, there's much better business models. But whenever people do come in and we give them a clinical assessment and a report of findings, and if they were to choose not to go ahead with our package, because it is still something we have to sell, and we, I, we can sell it with integrity, um, but if they do choose not to do it, and as I showed you in a lecture today, we give them as much resources as they need. So we will give them, okay, well, here's uh, like the NHS exercise guidance. It's all these videos on here. So, you, you know, you can do all of this on your own. We make sure they've got every resource they need to be able to self-manage. The sad reality is, is that a lot of people don't self-manage well on their own. Um, so, and they often do, do need a bit of support with that. But we, we, we make sure they're in the best place that they can be. Um, you know, we like it. We like to work with people over a period of time. We like it when you buy that package and it gives us time to really implement what we want to do with them. But also the people that don't go through, we do our best to give them everything that they need. 
Because we know that if we're going to help someone, and it has happened even from a business referral system, people who've not signed up, who've been given stuff, who really appreciated the assessment that we gave them, they've said, okay, you should go and see the, the guys at Back to Roots. And patients have come and seen us through word of mouth, and we've had business, if you like, through them. So, so I think we do our best even with the ones that don't buy our plan. But the the, the Joe Niche paper that came out recently that we spoke about today, you know, it says if, if you want to impact chronic pain, it's a lot more than exercise. So it's, it's sleep, stress management, nutrition, all of these kind of things. I, I don't think it's possible to get real, true behavior change in those in a short session or one session. If you really, truly want to drive that behavior, and, and you, the human brain will only make very small steps, so especially if you've got someone with very maladaptive beliefs, and you really want to help them, you, you're, you're, well, I don't see how it's possible to do that in one session or one short session. It will take time to shift that, gently challenge it. You may not challenge it to session five, six, or seven until that time when you've built up that therapeutic alliance where you can start to push a little bit more, or they've seen, they've enjoyed some of the results they've had already, so... Time itself, we, we value spending a bit more time with people, not just in slightly longer sessions, but also with a little bit more, a little bit more uh, length, if you like, for the whole session. And and I think we can defend that as well. Mm. I'm ask, how long are your sessions? Our sessions are usually sixty minutes, mm. um, but it's flexible. Mm. Uh, look, look has got a common term. He says where we don't have working hours. Mm. Uh, we we. Uh, will fit around people as best they can. Uh, we don't like seeing people back to back because we, we write quite detailed um, evaluations of what we've done and with some reflection and we'll discuss that. So it's 60 seconds, but even that for us is a bit too rigid. Mm. So if it needs to be longer, it's longer. If it needs to be less, it's less. But I would say on average it's about 60 seconds. The clinical assessment is as long as it takes. Mm. So when we book a clinical assessment in, you know, we make sure there's a there's a big gap in, in our timetable. Now, is that the best business model? Is that going to make the best money? Absolutely not. Um, but is it the best model for the patient? We, we've thought long and hard about it, and if we think there's anything better, we, we will we will shift that. Um, so it's 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 what we think is the right thing to do. With my with my diary, what I'll do is 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 the client the client time with us is the hour. But then I will, I will only ever book one patient in, in a 90-minute slot, which means because we plan, talk, we, we, non-linear pedagogy, every session is individually planned and reflected on because, again, what you plan and what actually happens, like this, what, what I had planned for our workshop today was not what happened. That's the whole nature of actually every single session. And to be able to then reflect on it then, we're going to be talking about it tomorrow, how you then get down and gather your thoughts for your thinking process for the next session when they're coming in, and a lot of our time with it when they're actually with us is creating programs and education for what's going on away from us. Mm-hmm. So that's again something that we're really strong in communicating when we sell programs is that we we price it for, for example, twelve sessions. But anyone who if and we were happy all of our clients happy for anyone to be able to speak about how they work with us because they're messaging me constantly it's twenty four seven support. Mm-hmm. I think it's great. So that's the time for that like you said behavior change and implementing more of a health and wellness coaching perspective as opposed to a symptomatic relief or mm-hmm. quick fix of their exactly their symptoms. I, that's, yeah. that's what i wanted to highlight as well that look just touched on there at the end that we almost don't see it as 12 sessions i mean they, they will come and see us face to face and by that 12th session that would be the end of their paid block but within that time they they are a back to roots patient and 
we work very hard around those sessions. So, so again, if you're trying to impact something like stress management or sleep, you need to get an idea of what's going on in their life, what's going on with their significant others who are going to be spending a hell of a lot more time with them than we are. So the kind of resources and things that we provide, like uh, the nutritional programs, and then looks the one that's really developed this, the, the work he's put into that is, is enormous. And we, we help create nutritional programs. And again, it's the same thing with, with exercise. We try and make it all around adherence. We, we know weight management's the obvious one. So we know with weight management, the, the, the key thing is that there's going to be a calorie deficit there. So it doesn't really matter what kind of diet plan they're eating, whether it's low carb, high carb, whatever. It's, so we will take our time and figure out, well, what is it that you're most likely to do? And then we'll hope to create those plans for them. That's all done outside of the session. And then we will reevaluate that and, and you know see how things are working for them and change it if need be. So we do that task based as well. It's, mm. it's 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 sixty minute sixty minute sessions on average, but it's you know it's there with the time they're with us, we're available for them. It's obviously a different business model, and it's, well, I think while we're focusing on it because it's interesting, and a lot of people haven't even reflected on how they operate and what they're doing in the industry. So I think this is an important conversation. So. In regards to, uh, do you guys call it the NHS over there? Yep. Yeah. Do you guys integrate with that? Is there is it like compens- compensation by the NHS for, is, is there like gap fees? How does it work? Do you have like concession for pensioners or is it like, how, or are you very rigid, this is what we offer? I suppose I find that style. Uh, there's no there's no NHS concession, so it's a, it's a it's a private business. So so you you would you would see we would be in the private healthcare sector. Um, we do our best. We understand that people sometimes won't be able to afford the block package that we're offering, and we will do our best to offer other plans or other payment plans that they can do. Um, if you think about that time, and I'm not just trying to to big up the. The, the business model, but if you if you think about the time that we give, even just session, without all the other stuff I said that goes around that, I would say that we are probably the cheapest healthcare professionals around. If you, if you took us pound per minute, um, because we spend a lot longer with people compared to people who would spend five, ten, fifteen minutes around. Um, regarding the NHS, I also uh, just recently had to leave because I've took another job. I've worked on the NHS for for a while. In a, in a chronic pain program. So I know what the NHS do uh, for, for chronic pain patients, and I, I, I see their attempt, their implementation of the evidence, and, and they're completely bound by it. In private practice, even though we're regulated, the reality is a lot of chiropractors and physios and anybody, they can probably get away with doing what they like. They shouldn't be able to do that, but nobody really polices it that well. So I've seen what happens in the NHS, and... Yeah, it's, it's a good attempt. It's much more, there's much more clinicians, much more multidisciplinary when they get to that point. There's psychologists, uh, there's psychologists, doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, but they're still doing a version of what we do. My bias is ours is a lot more fun, and I, I've seen the adherence to what we do, and maybe, maybe that's because our, the NHS is free. You, you pay a little bit more money, so you get a bit more time and maybe a bit more with us, but it's still following the same principles, the same implementation of, of the evidence and guided by the evidence. Beautiful. So I've got one other question just to come back on um, as well, Paul, in terms of your session times. And so you're going sort of 60 minutes to, to 90 minutes of time that you book at least for that initial session 
which is uh, for many of the health practitioners listening will be far beyond what they get with their employer or if they're a business owner that then they're not providing that time for, for whatever constraints that they have your approach or incorporating this kind of biopsychosocial strategy that incorporates play is there a way to do it sort of in in half an hour you know I'll do a video that because that's a, that's a question that we get along and just because we spend that amount of time that just works in terms of an individualised approach to patient care that's an individualised approach to how me and Paul like to work as well and so again we now um, have taken over the academic curriculum in the University of South Wales where we teach the, 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 the third and fourth years and support them through their clinical year. And then in their clinical year, they have to work within the constraints of a traditional clinic that is a small box room with just a bench in the room. Now, again, what the whole thing of what and the liberating nature of what we're presenting and against how we started is this... La Pilada concept of being able to create from a naked landscape based on whatever you have available to you. So how do you then be able to adapt it? So the games that we did today, so this concept of creative movement and tension dissociation using bodies as clay and archery, we have all of our students being able to create rehab programs in a room based on the fact that we can create something out of nothing. And when you're trying to facilitate thoughtless, fearless, relaxed movement, you don't need barbells. Okay, so to be able to then take a traditional model where if you're working in 15, 20-minute slots, to be able to develop a creative license that doesn't add any more time, it just gives you the skills to be able to bring some of these concepts within what you already have. Well, that's exactly what we're doing in the university practice. And there has, they, they, they have 30-minute sessions and they, don't, they, they have access to a gym, but they're typically working within a box room and just a bench. And it's been an incredibly liberating process for them to start to have the confidence to create a rehab program just in a room that doesn't need anything. I, I, w- I want to also jump in. I want to, uh, Luke mentioned it there, and it, I, think it's, I think it's important. That it's, it's a way, we've tried to think of the best way to implement the evidence, but it's also a way that we like to work. So I would probably have a bit more stress in my life trying to follow all of the things I want to be able to do by doing a shorter session. That's just me, and I know that's the way Luke wants. I feel with that time I enjoy my job a lot more, and we spoke about the importance of that for the healthcare professional. Could people do it quicker? Probably. We worked in London for a long time, and would people want shorter sessions in London? I'm sure it would be. There's there's a business model there for people that want shorter sessions. Um, but in terms of pressure and stress on ourselves as healthcare professionals, and what we're actually attempting to do, that this is what seems to work for us. We're not saying it's impossible any other way. We're not saying this is the only way. Um, but it's a it's a way that we like to work, and, and I think I think healthcare professionals should also think about looking after themselves. We actually did work in London for a while in a model where we had to see patients for seven minutes. Was it like seven minutes? <laughs> and it was horrendous. Mm. It was it was we we would come out shaking and stressed. 
Um, and you know, it, it affected it affected us so much that we had to leave um, pretty quickly. But you know, this this is your career. This is so I'm sure I'm sure many people can work that way and not feel as stressed as we did. But we just I felt we were failing people. I felt we were conning people in a way. So yeah, it works for us. But it's it's a good question. Could pe- could people do it shorter? Yeah, I'm sure they could. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a great. That's a good. I mean, that aligns with my values as. Uh, I think you know the literature really suggests that you know some longer session times are really needed for a lot of people to provide best practice care. And yeah, we have these you know constraints as businesses, but sometimes it's like, well, how do we how do we work around that? How do we problem solve this to actually provide healthcare for these people that actually truly need that time and want them? How do we get creative and do that? And it's really cool. And exciting to hear how you guys have implemented that. That, that, that. That's really exciting to hear. Before we wrap up, is there anything else? Any final comments? Luke looks like he's got this question that's like already coming out slowly. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, the health professional staff and looking after your health is really important. You told a story today, Luke, that I thought would be like a, a nice little story to finish on about the fishermen. Yeah, I don't. It's the. It's, it's the connecting story. It was something that me and Paul were going through at the time when we were in London, and it's based on the famous fable or, of The Alchemist, or a shorter version, if you haven't read The Alchemist, is where The, the Alchemist is about chasing pyramids. Um, but the fisherman fable, it's a much shorter version. It's, what's a, it's what we used to be able to make connection to Blue Zones, and it's where the, the, an American businessman was on vacation in a coastal fishing village um, on doctor's orders and one, one morning when he's heading down to the pier to clear his head he notices a small boat of the Mexican fisherman in docking with three large yellowfin tuna and he compliments the Mexican on his fish how long did it take you to get those he said oh not, not too long said the Mexican in surprisingly good English and the, Mexican, the, the American businessman said to him why don't you stay out there and catch more fish? He said, I've got enough to feed my family and give a couple to my friends. Well, what do you do with the rest of your time, said the businessman. He said, well, I sleep late, I fish a little, I stroll into the village each evening with my wife, Julia, sip wine, play guitar with my amigos. I have a busy life, said The American businessman laughed and stood tall and said, I'm a Harvard MBA and I can help you. You need to stay out there and catch more, catch more fish. And with the proceeds, you're going to have a bigger boat. And in the proceeds of a bigger boat, soon you'll have a fleet of fishing boats. In no time, you'll have a open, open your own cannery and be able to manage your growing enterprise. You're obviously going to have to leave this small coastal fishing village to move to Mexico City and then on to New York. And the Mexican replied and said, well, how long will all this take? And the American businessman said, 15, 20, 25 years tops. 25 years tops? Well, what happens then, said the Mexican. And the American guy said, well, that's the best part. You know, when the time is right, we'll announce an IPO and we'll sell the company to the public and you will make millions. Millions, senor. Well, then what? And he said, well, that's when you retire and move to a small coastal fishing village where you'll sleep late fish a little, stroll into the village each evening with your wife Julia, sip wine and play guitar with your amigos. Um, which was a very 
apt thing that me and Paul were going through in London and it's what I had done left where I'd come from to go to London chasing fishing fleets where everything that I actually needed was um, in in Wales and the mountains where I've come from so it's a it's a powerful fable that um, that has influenced my life and where I'm at today um, and there's probably something in there that most people can connect to Great. I, love it. I think I've solved the play problem yeah, I, I did pose that question to you whilst I was also trying to solve it. So I hear what you're saying over here that it's about repetition without repetition, right? Yeah. And it's about uh, infinite possibilities, mm-hmm. and it's this process that happens. It's it's and it's creative, right? So we could have uh, creative, infinite, iterative therapy. Say that again. Creative, infinite, and iterative therapy. C I I S. C C I I T. The kiss. Yeah, yeah. good so, work. I'm going to stick with it. It's like, You're creative. I can't believe you're thinking about that that whole time. Yeah. Right. That's good. Um, boys, thanks so much for joining us. Um, if you are listening to this podcast and um, it is within the next week of our recording um, the, we, you guys have a course in Melbourne um, in Footscray on October 5th and 6th so it's 2019 and um, if you want tickets just jump onto tkex.org and from the drop down of the courses at the top there you'll be able to find the knowledge exchange courses and um, book a ticket where you can learn about all of these things in detail and how to implement it in practice and have a hell of a good time um, at, at the same time but guys I hope you enjoy the rest of your stay and it's been an absolute pleasure having you out here so thanks so much for bringing us out it's been absolutely awesome yeah thanks guys absolutely love being here beautiful alright and Daniel welcome to the team it. and uh, you'll hear more from Daniel um, over the upcoming bit of time he gets noisy on social media and is well spoken and looking forward to learning a bit from him myself Congratulations, Daniel. Thank you.